0: And so I think the idea that we need to be urgent about climate change is a great distraction and also emphasizes a lack of empathy to the fact that so many other crises that are not unrelated to human-caused climate change have still not been addressed because people weren't urgent about them.
1: Hi, Jack. How are you doing? So it's the start of 2022, another plague year, and I had it again just before Christmas. For the second Christmas in a row, I got COVID, but according to today's statistics, one in a, one in ten of Londoners now has COVID, so I'm not special.
2: It's amazing.
1: Um, what about you? Are you surviving?
2: I am surviving. I sometimes reflect on the fact that, to my knowledge, I have not had COVID, and I don't totally understand what that says about me and my lifestyle. (laughs) You know, we've gone from people concerned in the beginning that if you acknowledge that you'd have COVID, that that would be some sort of moral statement, to now you're kind of wondering what (laughs) what's wrong with your social life, such that you've not yet been plagued.
1: There's a lot of talk here in the UK about understandably, about endemic COVID, about learning to live with the virus. In some ways, sort of normalising, making boring this pandemic, both sort of rhetorically and in biomedical terms. There's an interesting development, I think, you know, so the variant that we're all getting these days, you know, the cool kids. What became clear very quickly is that vaccines were doing rather little to stop the spread of this variant and that what they called immune escape was a big issue with it which sort of changes the conventional sort of biomedical debate about vaccination. I was playing the pandemic board game the other day with the kids, and that's all about sort of playing out the story of heroic science and heroic aid workers identifying and eradicating diseases. And it's all about the sort of eradication of the disease. And I guess what we've learned is is that this vaccine isn't very good at eradicating. It's not very good at stopping the spread. And so all of those sort of public good arguments about why herd immunity matters and the role of the vaccines in it and the role of the vaccine mandates where those exist vaccine passports all of those other tools start to sort of fall apart in quite interesting ways And you saw a joe biden at the end of the year saying basically this is on you the unvaccinated that it sort of becomes more of an individual thing you take the risks
2: But my sense in the United States, I mean, underneath that, there still is a strong belief in the technological fix, right? I mean, this idea that, number one, you need to be vaccinated and now boosted. And of course, in Israel, they're now on shot number four, which I think is fascinating. But in addition to that, the pandemic of the unvaccinated means... It's also the fault of the unvaccinated. It's still rooted in their refusal to accept the technological fix that we are in this situation. Is it the same kind of dynamic in the UK? Is the vaccine itself being called into question in policy or political debate? Or is there still that faith that I think we're still seeing in the US?
1: I think there is still a strong faith in the vaccine. It plays out differently, as you know, you know, the language still is about protecting the NHS. So even if it's about your personal choice, right, to take the risk, in political language, that's framed in terms of whether you are burdening an already stretched National Health Service by demanding hospital treatment when you could have just escaped with a nasty cold. So there is more solidarity in the vaccine rhetoric. The other interesting sort of technological difference is that In the UK, we are all testing, always and everywhere, everyone. We have an abundance of free tests, or we did until just before Christmas, right, when everybody wanted tests and suddenly the country ran out. Whereas in the US, that approach to testing was sort of mocked as being, you know, in effect communist, wasn't it?
2: I wouldn't necessarily say that. I think this idea of mass testing was never seen by policymakers anyway, as realistic, just completely unfeasible. But what I think is interesting is that I haven't completely worked it all out in my head, but the way that the pandemic has unfolded, certainly in the U.S., has been entirely polarized. And on the right, you have a lack of trust in experts, and that continues, and especially experts who are far from you. So you're more likely to trust your doctor than Anthony Fauci, for example, but on the left, you have seen not only trust, but extreme white knuckled faith in technologies, whether that's vaccines, but also tests. And that started at the beginning with this deep distress that there was no testing, that we had this testing scarcity. And that in some respects was similar in the US and the UK. The UK then went completely you know, all in on testing. But we didn't in the US. We we kind of put all of our eggs into the vaccine basket. There's always been availability of tests, but it has never been particularly great. You have to wait a long time for PCR tests. You have these antigen tests that are available at pharmacies and that are pretty expensive. And then Omicron hits. And basically, again, especially on the left, people go completely testing crazy, right? They're just trying to find tests everywhere and in the process as someone who's been analyzing testing over the last 2 years it's just amazing to me how the test is kind of seen as synonymous with the vaccine right nobody actually says that but but that's how it's framed So much so that there was this highly publicized, what's seen as a gaffe by the president's press secretary late last year, where with the rise of Omicron, people were asking her all these questions about testing scarcity. And she, in exasperation, said, what are we supposed to do? Send everybody a test, which is as you can imagine, not just a logistical nightmare to send tests to 320 million people, but we know it is because we have seen actually in the UK case that attempts to kind of do this at-home testing ended up being a pretty giant failure. But in addition to that, tests are just Snapshots of a moment in time when you took the test, tests themselves differ significantly. There's now also some evidence that antigen tests are not particularly successful in catching omicron early in the transmission period. And yet we we are kind of holding on to this with dear life. and it is fascinating to me because it kind of shows the politics of the black box. We talk in science and technology studies about the black box and how we want to open the black box and show how society shapes the guts of technology and how that's really consequential. But there is also real social work done in the function of the black box, keeping it closed. It's being manipulated for all sorts of reasons. And people who I think know better are constantly invoking, in this case, the test. Like, the test can do this, the test can do that. When tests operate in societies, and tests are societies, and we we know this. Both tests and vaccines serve, as as you are saying,
1: the vital function of providing a semblance of control of something, especially something like a new variant that appears to be out of control. And as you say, testing has become normalized in Britain. But it's, in the round, done almost nothing, it seems to control the spread of this variant, which has been absolutely ripping through London, ripping through the rest of the country. So even though it gives me a little bit more reassurance that when I go and see my family, I'm not, I'm pro- in my case, clear of the virus that I had the week before, as a public health device, as a means of control, it's doing very little. Might I use that as a segue to our next topic? Sure,
2: please.
1: So the seductive idea that we should just be able to understand and control our bodies, that very simple idea which sits behind some of the most interesting story of the first week of 2022, is the conviction of Elizabeth Holmes, founder and chief executive of Theranos, And this was a fascinating story, fascinating, not just because of what happened, but also because of how it was reported as a sort of comeuppance for a Silicon Valley, fake it till you make it type approach to innovation. I mean, what's your sense of the Theranos story and what we and others can have learned from it?
2: One of the things that's, of course, fascinating is how exceptionally it's been treated I can't help thinking that this is daily life in Silicon Valley, right? Or in tech more generally, as you know, since you're an expert in thinking about issues around hype, Elizabeth Holmes did what every other tech entrepreneur does, which is to make fantastic claims about their technology in order to get investors. And You know, in her case, she's this young, pretty blonde. She famously wore a black turtleneck like Steve Jobs, which is also really fascinating, right? Because she's both fitting in physically in some ways into a clear trajectory of what an innovator is who fits in this club. Oh, you have to wear a black turtleneck in order to fit into the club. She went to Stanford. She dropped out of Stanford, right? All of those things make her part of this lineage of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and et cetera. And yet also she's a woman, right? So she, when she was climbing that ladder, people would make so much about this young, brilliant woman who was able to perform magic like these innovators before her, But in fact, she wasn't really performing any magic. The test that she claimed, you know, you could use a very small amount of blood in order to do tests of all kinds, never materialized in any real sense of the word. It is absolutely part and parcel of Silicon Valley and has not led to any real reflection, as far as I can tell, about that aspect of the culture. That's
1: what's so interesting. And I think Her being a woman certainly makes it easier for Silicon Valley to say, oh, well, she is different in some way, right? And she's different, she's deviant. So even though the performance and the claims that she's making were sort of identical in tone to Steve Jobs and to Elon Musk, working out why Elizabeth Holmes is a fraudster and Elon Musk isn't, It's a really hard thing to do other than by pointing at a share price and saying, there you go, Tesla hasn't crashed yet. You would think it's a tricky thing to do. But the one thing that I guess a lot of us who look at Silicon Valley think is that we sort of no longer claim to understand the monetization of hype in that way. It's really hard to justify why bubbles do keep inflating and whether there are incentives for anyone to prick bubbles. I think that's the other sort of lesson that we might take from the Theranos example, is why people on the inside, and why scientists as well, didn't do more to ask really easy questions. You know, the questions that actually journalists in the end asked. Like, does this thing work? Where is it? Can we see it? Can we see the data? right? Those sort of questions where you would hope that science, to use Harvey Brooks's term, which I really like, which is that you know, science should be the conscience of technology. That should be one of the things that it helps us with in terms of innovation. And yet nobody seemed to be asking those questions, nor indeed did the investors, because it was more in their interest to keep inflating.
2: Well, I think what's really interesting about that is that it complicates the notion of science, right? So... How do we know that the technology worked? Well, if you look at the history of Elizabeth Holmes, and I think that there are things that we could say about many other stories in Silicon Valley, it just so happens that she somehow crossed the line of what constituted defrauding investors. I'll use another big word here epistemological basis for the way these claims get constructed. People have been talking about how she brought in as investors all of these really important, well-known people, often national security military experts, to essentially endorse the technology. She is interviewed widely. I think she purposefully went to all kinds of media outlets, Silicon Valley media outlets, national, international media outlets. All of that was about essentially creating a bandwagon effect, sort of creating the scaffolding of all of these experts who essentially endorsed her. So she never had to actually show anybody how the technology worked because they were experts in other areas. They could transfer their expertise here. And then it allowed for this to happen. I suspect, in fact, I know that in other areas of technology, you see the same phenomenon. And I hope that it will lead people to ask new kinds of questions, but I'm not gonna hold my breath.
1: Yeah, one of the interesting things about all of the, especially old white men that were sort of enrolled into the project of building the credibility of her company, the price for their enrollment seems to be so low, so you would think it would be absolutely mortifying to have been involved with Theranos, and yet you have folks like Henry Kissinger who put his money and his credibility into the company, joined the board, I think. And in 2021, he brings out a book on AI claiming that he has some sort of brilliant access to the truth about technological innovation when you would have thought his involvement in Theranos, notwithstanding all of his <laughs> you know, previous reasons for embarrassment, you would have thought that that would diminish your reputation, but the Silicon Valley story about failure and learning is is so powerful that it sort of organizes irresponsibility around hype in some fascinating ways.
2: One of the things that I've been thinking about is how, when things go wrong, when it comes to technology, whether that's at the individual level or at the corporate or societal level, we tend to individualize the error or the risk. So in this case, it's a bad apple. That kind of approach helps to reinforce the idea that in fact, by and large, technology is unproblematic, we should have faith. And we can, in fact, easily identify the places where there's a problem, and we cast them out, that's a bad apple, or, you know, it's the personal responsibility. And I think that one interesting place where I've seen that, and maybe it's changing, although I'm curious, is in the story of the pulse oximeter that we've seen over the last couple of years. We know values are embedded in technological design. And so if they're made in societies that have biases, which they always are, that the technologies are likely to reflect them. And that's true with the pulse oximeter. And so for a long, long time, if you were a person of color and you used a pulse oximeter, then any inaccuracies in that, you didn't necessarily even know that it was inaccurate. And if it was, you sort of would individualize responsibility because nobody was acknowledging that there was any problem. But in August of 2020, this anthropologist, and STS scholar actually in the U.S., pointed out that the way that the pulse oximeter works, it refracts light. Your skin tone matters. And in fact, that might mean that it's less accurate among black people in particular, but people of color more generally. And that started more and more people paying attention to it. In fact, at University of Michigan, we had a number of physician scientists do a small study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed quantitatively that it basically missed Black patients who were experiencing low blood oxygen, which has real consequences for COVID-19, right? Because... If the device is showing that your blood oxygen is higher than it actually is, that's going to affect whether or not you get hospitalized, whether or not you're offered oxygen, et cetera. And the interesting thing is that late last year, the UK government announced that they were going to look into this issue in particular, but it sounds like racial bias more generally in terms of medical devices. And so I'm interested in what happened, what your thoughts are on that. Am I right to see this as a glimmer of hope or should I continue to be a curmudgeon about it?
1: I think I might be a bit of a curmudgeon about it, which might tell you something about my current levels of trust in our current administration. One of the things that happened last year is we had a change of health secretary. Sajid Javid took over, who I guess wanted to emphasize that he was a sort of competent type who was able to grapple difficult issues. And it was interesting, as you said, you know, a release came out in December, November, that said that the government would look into this as part of a broader review and a set of questions that have been circulating for about 18 months about why people of colour have suffered so much um, more from COVID than white British people. So I think, yes, it's good that people are asking these questions because, The fact that the health secretary is talking about it rather than it just being a sort of wonkish design question is interesting, but it also makes me wonder if it might be a convenient question. A few episodes back in the podcast, we talked to Angela Saini, who's been looking at race and science, and in particular, race science, the way in which science is implicated in the construction and exacerbation of racial inequalities. And in that discussion, I remember she told us that Part of the problem has been sort of confusion about health outcomes, health inequalities, and racial inequalities in Britain, which are almost all due to economic inequalities, that black and minority ethnic communities are more likely to be poor and more likely to have worse outcomes, which is a really difficult thing for a government, particularly a Conservative government, to tackle. It's a sort of really complicated question of health inequalities. So it becomes quite convenient then to center on one particular device or a set of devices and say, let's see this as a design problem rather than as a political problem. So I'm unsure what to make of it. I don't want to be even more pessimistic than you, but I think my grounds for pessimism, maybe cynicism, given that it's the health secretary, are are relatively solid
2: here. I think the interesting thing in the U.S. context is that the FDA... Responded with an advisory on pulse oximeters specifically, but in this advisory, which does not have any real effect, it did not mention race at all, which is kind of fascinating. Again, in comparative context, right? In both the US and the UK right now, there has been a lot of discussion about how we are experiencing a racial reckoning, we're thinking about racial inequalities in serious ways. In fact, we've talked on the podcast about how the Biden administration in particular has really taken steps to consider racial equity and justice. And so in that context, the fact that the FDA's response is this isn't always accurate, without even mentioning that the inaccuracy is about racial difference, or at least difference in skin tone, is notable. But it also shows how feckless our regulatory institutions are when it comes to issues around inequality and justice, because at the end of the day, the problem is that the FDA, like all medical device agencies, to my knowledge, around the world... They don't think about equity and justice when they're approving a medical device. They think very narrowly about questions of safety, and they do think about questions of accuracy. But when they're looking at that question of accuracy, they're looking at aggregate data. They're not asking questions about racial difference, even though, as I suggested, Pulse oximeter is not the only case where racial bias is embedded into a medical device. There's the spirometer. There's a famous book by Lundy Braun about the history of the spirometer and how there's actually a race correction software embedded into this technology that is enormously consequential for assessing lung function. These are just the cases we know about. You
1: started off by mentioning that the knowledge or the awareness of this question came. From our neck of the woods in disciplinary terms, but it takes recognition by doctors, by clinicians, by scientists, including the physicians at the University of Michigan, and then by senior politicians to open the black box a little bit.
2: In some ways, that leads us to our interview for this episode. We're talking with Kyle White, who is a philosopher, but his main appointment is in the School for Environment and Sustainability. He's at University of Michigan. I tried not to have too many University of Michigan colleagues on here. I can't help it that we're just awesome, but uh, I try not to do that. But I think that Kyle is another interesting example of someone who is a philosopher. He's Native American. He's a citizen of the Potawatomi nation. And he brings that perspective to studies of climate change and environmental justice more generally. And there is this i think recognition that these perspectives whether it's humanities or social science or native american perspectives are crucial to understanding issues of science and technology and environment and including climate change but they also have to be accepted by the dominant experts who have been involved in these discussions or who we generally turn to in these discussions. And those are technical experts. And Kyle, I think, has successfully traversed this boundary. He has served on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. He's also been part of the National Climate Assessment for the U.S. Global Change Research Program, and he's written reports for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But this is a real challenge. Again, I think the interview I'm super excited about demonstrates how crucial the kind of knowledge that he offers provides to these conversations, but also the tensions In providing this kind of knowledge when the problem is framed by technical experts.
1: So dive right in.
2: Kyle, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Maybe we can just start from a really general place, which is what is Indigenous knowledge and why is it important to think about Indigenous knowledge for environmental? policy, climate policy, climate decision-making.
0: Great to be with you, Shabita, and great to be with you, Jack. In terms of Indigenous knowledge, you know, I think oftentimes there's a lot of misunderstanding out there that understands us idea of Indigenous knowledge as simply information that, you know, Indigenous people might have that is translatable into different types of scientific fields. And so, you know, what do I mean by Indigenous people? Well, there's over 400 Indigenous people in the world, and they're people who, prior to a colonial period, existed as self-governing, self-determining societies, nations, governments, had their own languages, cultures, diplomatic traditions indigenous people like my tribe were often living under these conditions of colonization. So when people think about North America, you know, they think about the United States or Canada or Mexico, but for many, many hundreds of years, it was people like Potawatomi people or Navajo people or Seminole people or others who were self-governing and exercising self-determination. And we still do that today, except we have this major Impediment with having to deal with a larger colonial power like the United States who its policy is, that it exercises plenary power over us. So its own policy is that it exercises colonial power. So because as indigenous people, our communities existed for so long and were self-governing and self-determining and sovereign, uh, just like any society, we had our own reliable knowledge traditions. We had our own sciences. We had our own ways of studying things and learning about things and then using what we found out. In order to serve the needs of our society, whether it was needs having to do with our food systems, our educational systems, or our political relationships with other societies. And so indigenous knowledge at the very basis just refers to the idea that indigenous people have for generations had their own systems for generating reliable knowledge. Now, the thing about Indigenous knowledge is there's so many different facets to it, and it depends on, obviously, the particular community. But one of the things that I wanted to highlight is that Indigenous knowledge speaks a lot to some of the challenges that we're facing today, especially with climate change. Indigenous knowledge systems have a lot to say about how humans can behave responsibly in ways that in turn, make the environment behave in ways that are harmful to humans. Indigenous knowledge talks about the values and the attitudes that people have and how those attitudes can sometimes be beneficial if they're grounded in really important ethics and values like reciprocity or trust, but that if they're valued in greed or consumerism, then things can go awry and people can be toxic to each other, people can do things that are bad for the environment. Indigenous knowledge also talks about all sorts of different ways, actually, to do research and to understand research relationships. You know, I think Indigenous knowledge traditions are heavily coupled with the idea that research should be driven by community needs, not the needs of citation metrics or not the needs of trying to stir up trouble, but research should be driven by things that communities need, and communities need to be those who review research and those who research is made accessible to so that they can in turn incorporate it into their lives. And then lastly, Indigenous knowledge has a lot to say about policy and about the way in which policy should work. A lot of Indigenous knowledge systems like uh, Nishinabe systems, which is the larger group that Potawatomi people are part of, really advocate for political systems that are non-hierarchical And that there's not sort of a separation between those in power and those who are subject to those in power, but a more of a flat democratic society and one that doesn't have a patriarchal formation or even a binary gender system. And that recognizes that all people, whether they're five years old or 75 years old, have important knowledge and perspective and information that should weigh in at all times on the major decisions that a society is having to make.
1: Can we just maybe turn to climate as a crisis, as an issue, but also as a domain of knowledge? And I just want to get your sense of so, if you take the indigenous perspective that you describe and you put that alongside conventional climate science, which, if not making claims to be universal, is certainly making claims to be global and sort of loses that sort of connection with the land and with local knowledges that you're talking about. What's your sort of sense coming from that tradition of how organized, institutionalized climate
0: science comes up short at the moment? Yeah, absolutely, Jack. And one thing I wanted to mention just right away in terms of the question that you asked is, you know, I know in this conversation, we're going to be talking a lot about indigenous perspectives. I think for folks who are listening to the podcast, it's important to note that on the one hand, each community, each tribe, each indigenous nation has its own traditions, its own way of doing things can be pretty diverse internally as well. But at the same time, Indigenous people, kind of like the dialogue we're having right now, have tried to find solidarity and mutuality in terms of how their different traditions can be in dialogue with each other. And so oftentimes we talk about an Indigenous perspective, Indigenous views, Indigenous knowledge, and oftentimes what we're referring to is that more global dialogue, right? And so I think it's important because it's a dialogue that helps support where diverse indigenous people are coming from in their diversity and in their difference. And so in terms of climate change, Climate science is oftentimes seen as a fairly novel science, a fairly new science, and it's also seen as a science that is trying to learn about its relationship to policy and to the rest of society. Climate scientists have really had to put themselves out there in dealing with people who are skeptical about the severity and risks of climate change. And so climate science is really trying to grapple with what's its relationship to the rest of the world, to society, to non-scientific persons, experts of other types and varieties. For indigenous people, there's also climate science, but it looks a little bit different in a lot of indigenous traditions like Anishinaabe ones or Potawatomi ones. Climate science would actually be like our oldest science, because if you look in our like oldest forms of knowledge, they were literally knowledge traditions or reliable knowledge about how a society itself should be organized to be as adaptive as possible to seasonal change, but also to longer term trends in environmental change, you know, like greater frequencies of drought or extreme weather events. And so that's similar to what climate scientists refer to as climate or climate change. And so a lot of indigenous people, and people can look this up online if you look up indigenous seasonal rounds or indigenous seasonal calendars, you know we have these ancient traditions of how a society really needs to be very carefully organized, including in the political sense, so that it can be as adaptable as possible and prepared as possible to negotiate annual changes and seasons and then trends across different years. And so climate science would actually be our oldest science and One of the observations that comes out of a lot of indigenous knowledge is that knowledge keepers or scientists should be really plugged into what everybody else is doing and thinking. You know, if you're a indigenous knowledge holder, you're out there in society or you're working with people. People build trust with you. They learn to rely and count on the information that you provide. And so, from an indigenous science perspective, there's no such thing as an ivory tower. If you're somebody that's taken to be a knowledge holder, you would have already have had to have been educated in the skills of what it means to both be a knower and a really good communicator. And so in that way, indigenous knowledge systems have really kind of strict approaches to peer review. There's a lot of oversight. You know, if I am an indigenous knowledge holder, I do a study that's got to go through multiple layers of review from different members in the community, from other knowledge holders, even from children. And so in this way, it's more of a community process. And so for this reason, I think indigenous knowledge has a lot to say, not only about what climate change is and what the risks are. Uh, but also just about what science is and how science can be structured.
2: So Kyle, what you say about not distinguishing between the scientist and society, really, or the scientist and the policymaker is so fascinating. As you were talking, I was thinking about all of the angst that scientists, climate scientists in particular, have both as you were suggesting about communication, but also about ensuring, and of course, this isn't just climate science, it's all scientists about evidence based policy, we need to ensure that policy is evidence based. And that's the problem. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is, in the context of indigenous knowledge traditions, there is no such division between evidence and policy, which of course in the Western traditions, or at least certainly in the U.S., the trust in evidence and trust in policy in a fictionalized way, they both ensure and assert their authority by there being a distinction between the two.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Shabita. That's a great question. And we see this come to light actually in cases where indigenous knowledge holders and climate scientists have worked together and have had some initial disagreements on whether certain types of changes have occurred. So for example, there's been a lot of different cases where Indigenous knowledge holders and climate scientists have initially disagreed on whether in a particular locality you had a particular phenomena happening, like wind patterns were changing or you know, a season was starting at a different time or, or even temperature differences or fluctuations. And what usually often comes out in those situations is precisely this difference, where oftentimes the climate scientists have very little experience in that particular locality and are using a type of instrumentation like a weather station or something like that, that few people outside of those scientific circles have access to or the expertise on, and that really those instruments are just measuring a few things out there in the environment. But then with the indigenous knowledge holders, they're actually drawing from a lot more observations. They're talking to harvesters and hunters and ceremonialists and educators who are out on the land who are taking different types of of input who are looking at things like plant and animal changes. They're looking at observations made at different times of day about weather change and things like that. And so, you know, none of those particular individuals is seen as somebody that has knowledge that's sort of inaccessible to the rest of society, but they're people whose insights are Respected because of particular activities that they're doing in support of the community. And so the big difference here, you know, and I've served as an author on a number of different scientific climate change reports, like the National Climate Assessment and a number of others. And it feels so closed off. Like to be an author on one of those reports, you have to have a certain credential, you have to deal with other scientists and academics in a kind of a confidential space. And the rest of society doesn't really feel engaged. They don't really feel like their knowledge matters in those processes unless they've been in the position to have a scientist do a paper on their region and it pass through academic peer review. So I think that's one of the big lessons that comes out of a a lot of indigenous knowledge for science. As Shabita would say, you know, we have this neat institutionalized way that these
1: things tend to be thought about is sort of knowledge, then policy, then action in a sort of linear flow. And you've written recently in, I think, a way that's just extremely powerful about the notions of time that are allowed to dominate in debates about how we respond to climate change. And in particular, you take issue with something that I think is really interesting, which is the story of urgency and sometimes expressed as a sort of emergency about climate change and we see not just from scientists but also social movements are sort of often forced to take this language as well saying we've got x years left to save x it's that sort of story and you make a lovely analogy to it's like playing speed chess right that it sort of forces it forces societies to do the things that come naturally to them almost as a sort of form of muscle memory. And actually, that sort of urgency really closes down the space for the sorts of slow, inclusive responses that I guess Indigenous perspectives would be more likely to
0: support. Have I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think for most people, they can escape some of this Information out there in the media and in science and in other public venues about the importance of being urgent about addressing climate change. And really, I think for a number of indigenous people, you know, but also people of color, you know, people from communities in the global majority, there's a lot of skepticism about whether that urgency is well productive, but also will lead to climate change solutions that are going to be equitable. And I want to say a few things about that and also relate it to this notion of time that you mentioned. So I think when we ask the question of, well, what does something like human-caused climate change mean to Indigenous people? It's not really the idea that within the last several decades, Native people have all of a sudden recognized that humans can impact the environment at a global scale or at a regional scale. And what's interesting is a lot of indigenous knowledge traditions, even going really far back, they never actually assumed that there was a separation between humans and the climate system even if historically we know that societies many hundreds of years ago probably didn't have very big carbon footprints but you know a lot of indigenous stories ancient stories are about how the climate was changing it was posing risks and humans took on the attitude of how can we be responsible for this and so in that light indigenous people have never sort of separated the human connection to the climate system and Historically, when we think about the current climate change ordeal, you know, I think we have to start with the fact that we wouldn't be in this mess with climate change if it wasn't for the fact that the industries that are responsible for increased concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere hadn't been able to take root on indigenous peoples' lands. And so, if you look at the history, for example, of mining, fossil fuel industry, and other land use patterns that are responsible for the rising concentrations of greenhouse gases, they're all ones that were able to grow as quickly and as dramatically as they did because governments and private citizens and others didn't care about whether they had trustworthy, consensual, non-exploitative, reciprocal relationships with the indigenous people whose lands were being essentially stolen to make way for those industries or heavily degraded by the pollution and other byproducts of those industries. And so the climate change crisis began with a absolute disregard, disrespect and colonization of indigenous people. And so several hundred years ago, when these oppressive wheels started turning, you know, I think what's important is that it wasn't just that the industries that we now know are responsible for human-caused climate change were able to take root. It's not just that. It's that their taking root was involved with the creation of deep toxicity and inequality across society. And so it's created a circumstance where for a lot of indigenous people today, you know, we have no reason to trust the United States or trust private industry. And each decade, there are examples of continued mistreatment, whether it's the boarding or residential schools, whether it's the 20th century incursion of nuclear industry and oil and gas industry on indigenous lands. This cycle of toxicity has continued. And it's continued over time and the great horrible irony of it all is when that was occurring very few people felt that the problems of colonialism were urgent problems they never thought that that was urgent or any of those things were urgent they haven't been taking action to address racism and the impacts of racism given that if it wasn't for racism, the fossil fuel sector would not have been able to grow at the pace that it did and have the impact that it has now on the climate system. And so in this way, this is a different conception of time because for a lot of Indigenous people, whether they're people that are having to permanently resettle or whether they're people that are heavily interested in having a a green economy in their own tribal nations, we're looking at all of the issues that people weren't urgent about in the past and they've been stacking and stacking and stacking and stacking and so one reason why many indigenous people are going to be completely overlooked by the quote unquote just energy transition is that in order just to be able to host renewable energy infrastructure like solar you would have had to have benefited from all the previous periods of infrastructure investment. <laughs> but of course, because of the types of injustice I've been talking about, many communities were denied over generations these infrastructure investments. And so they don't have the broadband, they don't have the transportation infrastructure, they don't have the water infrastructure and other aspects of infrastructure. And so the climate crisis then deepens the crises that nobody was ever urgent about before. And they're still not urgent about it. With communities that are having to permanently resettle due to climate change, most of those communities, the reason why they're having to resettle is not because they happen to live in an area that is vulnerable to something like coastal erosion. It's because they were forced to live in those areas because of generations of land dispossession and pollution to make way for fossil fuel and other industries. And so those issues of land dispossession never addressed, and they still need to be addressed. But then everybody's focused on just how do these different groups get the funding they need to resettle to an area that could even be outside of their historic homelands or an area that they're not as culturally connected to or that won't be as economically vibrant to them. And so I think the idea that we need to be urgent about climate change is a great distraction and also emphasizes a lack of empathy to the fact that so many other crises that are not unrelated to human-caused climate change, have still not been addressed because people weren't urgent about them. And I think it's a different way of thinking about time because whereas some folks tend to think of climate change as just a phenomena that sort of emerges fairly recently, I think for indigenous people, it's actually an older phenomena, human-caused climate change, and it's never left us. It wasn't buried in history. It's still present because all of those problems are still crises today. So I'm wondering
1: whether you think during the pandemic and how the pandemic has destabilised or maybe intensified and concretized the relationship between science and society. I just wonder whether you have a sense of, even with the new administration in the US, is that likely to get better or worse? I mean, you mentioned the just transition, right? which sounds like it's more than just replacing one set of technologies with another set of technology. But the story that you tell comes from evidence that suggests enormous reasons to be skeptical of the care about injustice, certainly in
0: American society. Yeah, and I think it depends on the different scientific communities that we're focusing on. There's been some scientific fields that over a number of decades have really attempted to repair the relationship between their work and the addressing of inequity and injustice. And so take a lot of climate scientists that I know, they have really attempted to work out the various separation that's been there in the past between their work and issues of equity and and justice and inclusion. But on the other hand, there's a number of fields that really haven't even considered it, and they're so exuberant to launch solutions to different climate change problems. I mean, a number of scientists I know that work in different renewable energy or different clean energy solutions, you know, it's like they're pretty ill-prepared to be able to think through what it would be needed for their technologies to be implemented. And if we can't get the justice part right, there will be a much slower pathway to sustainability. There's a lot of good evidence showing that solutions like wind power are often associated with further dispossessing Indigenous people of their lands in different parts of the world, are associated actually with Profit-sharing schemes that don't include people that live nearby, but that also then weaken other economic opportunities for them, like tourism. And so... That's actually going to leave those communities worse off, including worse off environmentally. And if you take another common technology like hydropower as a a clean energy solution, again, that's one where that particular industry or, or hydropower approaches, they still don't know how to do it in a way that doesn't ruin people's lands that live nearby the reservoirs and the big infrastructure goes along with hydropower. So that's one aspect, but the other aspect is that if justice is not just completely intertwined with addressing climate change then we're actually leaving out some of the most active environmentalists in the world so during the last national climate assessment we had a tribal and indigenous chapter we worked with the bureau of indian affairs and created a graphic of all of the different actions that at the time in 2018 indigenous people were taking to address climate change and in the initial One that we did, there was 800 just in the United States context. Now, if you look at the Bureau of Indian Affairs website, it's over 1,000. And what I've learned in my experience working in tribal context, whatever we can document is probably only a third of what's out there. So there's at least 1,000 actions. And the ones we documented are only about adaptation to exclude all of the anti-fossil fuel work that tribes have done. And, And the Indigenous Environmental Network recently has been trying to actually measure the impact of Indigenous advocacy on lowering carbon footprints by stopping dirty projects. And so if we just look at the U.S. context, there's thousands of actions that Native people are doing on their own to address climate change, and there's only a few million of us. And there's 10 million people in Michigan. There are not a thousand climate change actions in Michigan that people are taking. So, if justice and equity aren't taken seriously, then there's a huge sector of environmentalism led by indigenous people, by people of color, by communities of the global majority that will just be left out of these solutions. And I I just can't think that that would make the transition to sustainability or zero carbon footprint faster.
2: So, on that note, I'm so happy that you have been in a position where, as you said, you're contributing to the National Climate Assessment and then the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You've been part of the White House environmental justice work. And I'm wondering, given the urgency framing, the fact that now we are in this moment where we're using language more and more People in the technical community are using language around equity and justice, but are still driven by an urgency framing. How do you make this case in that context? How do you make this case in policymaking contexts and innovation contexts in ways that you think are making headway or successful? How do you manage?
0: Yeah, it's something that right now is the crux of policymaking in the U.S. and other parts of the world. So take, for example, the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. So this was a council convened by the Biden-Harris administration right after they started their time in office. And it's a council that serves a bunch of purposes for the white house there's 26 members of it who represent people with long engagement with communities that have been most affected by environmental degradation and affected disproportionately bad ways and one of the huge initiatives that we've had to play a major advisory role and a major role making recommendations on is called justice 40. What the administration is trying to do is find ways to tangibly show that they are taking actions that create transformation within communities of color on the ground. And the Justice40 initiative is connected to infrastructure. One of the ways the administration can do that is by really improving the infrastructure in underserved communities uh, because it's been a lack of adequate infrastructure and unfairly so that has made it so that so many of our communities have had to face disproportionately bad burdens of pollution or have issues like lead be unaddressed or just not have the environmental monitoring in our communities to track potential risks. In some key areas of infrastructure like water infrastructure and climate resilient infrastructure and energy infrastructure, 40% of the benefits. Of those investments would flow to underserved communities. And so our council had to weigh in on what does 40% mean? That quickly got us into, I think it was almost 60 pages of like single-spaced recommendations on what this would mean to say that infrastructure investments will benefit communities. And this goes back to Jack's question about time. It goes into the fact that for communities that have never been allowed to participate in the major infrastructure eras of the United States. That doesn't just mean we don't have infrastructure. It means that we don't own much infrastructure. We don't have community financial mechanisms to support infrastructural growth in our communities, we don't have the sorts of access to education and technical training that would be needed for a community to really be able to uh, be heavily involved in different types of infrastructure projects, and oftentimes we just don't have the businesses and the other types of institutions to ensure that the money, the investment money, would stay in the community and not flow out to contractors from, from elsewhere. Lastly, we don't even know how to measure this. How do you measure community development? How do you measure positive community growth? How do you measure these things? It's either unclear or it's very complex how you would do that, especially given we're talking about many, many thousands of communities across the United States, all extremely different. And so right now uh, in the policy world, our council in mid-May put out very detailed recommendations. It was a lot of work that really grappled with actually, what does it mean to say that we're trying to make up for several centuries of oppression and disinvestment and disregard? And because of the role that people of color voters played and the pressure on the Democrats, they're trying to literally solve over 200 years of inequity before the midterm elections. <laughs> And that is extremely challenging, but all of the agencies right now, as well as a number of nonprofit organizations are really trying to actively tackle this. And so this is where we're at right now. And there are many hundreds of conversations occurring across the government and at the interface of governments and frontline communities and nonprofit organizations about, can we actually do justice for or is it just gonna end up to be something where by the time we get to the interim elections, there's a few pilot examples that are portrayed to be cases where it worked, but we still don't know how to implement it at a larger scale.
2: You mentioned a couple of times they're thinking about metrics and measurement and essentially you know, evaluation, performance evaluation, but then we've talked a little bit now about indigenous knowledge, have very different ways of knowing right? And I'm wondering, how has that come up in the discussions you've been having on the council? How do you resolve that? Because I think underneath that, again, it's, it's an issue of both trust, but also history and legacy and capacity.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate your bringing up that issue. And what I've seen today, perhaps more than ever in my uh, career, and there may be other historical precedents for that is we're really now confronting just how inadequate the federal system is and the the state system is for doing the work that needs to get done what we're finding is that agencies whether federal or state or other instruments of government you know they're not tangled up at all with communities they don't know what communities think and because people that work in agencies are professionals that are concerned about their own performance, then it oftentimes makes them quite naturally conservative about whether to take on any of these projects for somebody whose whole career is going to be assessed from an agency standpoint by whether they can manage programs and meet certain success criteria, you know, they're not going to be particularly excited about measuring the success of their work according to whether they were able to demonstrate that they've made an intervention that overcomes hundreds of years of disempowerment by communities. You know, it's created this sort of scenario where you get people from communities saying, this is how we understand what change is. This is what we understand what benefits are. And then agencies who, again, are not entangled with those communities, they're not known to those communities, are then saying that they can't do that. They can't evaluate or measure themselves that way. And so I think it's pushing us to actually think about just what we're doing here at at this interface where we're advocating for improvements in policy. But what are the limitations of policy? And is there even a chance that the overhauls could be needed to change the culture of federal agencies? And just briefly, in terms of differences in how people understand success, you know, absolutely we're dealing with that. You know, in a lot of the dominant institutions, success is measured by whether their work becomes increasingly abstract, that is, whether it gets national, whether it gets international, whether it kind of moves out and out from the community and has sort of a larger global footprint. So, for example, programs that seek to create change in communities by creating more roles for community members at the White House or at the United Nations, you know, are seen as examples of supporting communities. But for a lot of different communities, especially Indigenous people, it works a little bit the opposite. You know, there might be times in your life where you have to serve in those roles, but ultimately you're judged as successful by your local impacts, by what you're doing on the ground and your capacity to stick with particular projects that you have taken on. And so when money flows, Flows to support native folks in higher and higher positions, but it's not flowing directly to communities. Then that creates a situation where only certain people are valued as successful, whereas everybody else is still trying to toil in a situation where the types of roles that we find to be successful are ones that are not actually given the support.
2: On that note. Kyle, it sounds like there's some potential for hope, some potential for reflection, but maybe cautious optimism. But I'm very struck by what you said about we're trying to fix in less than two years, hundreds of years of abuse and violence and inequities. And I'm so appreciative that you're part of the conversation.
0: It'll be fascinating to watch, certainly from the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah, it's, it's challenging work and you know I don't think we should hope, but I think we should each day renew our sense of trying to do better with our accountability. And as we enter new spaces and different spaces, just continue to challenge ourselves about how can I be more accountable? I think that's what we need to deal with the climate crisis, to deal with other issues that are multi-generational issues that we're facing.
2: Well, on that note, thanks again for a really wonderful conversation.
0: We gather our hands
1: and hope for the best But only a fool would let the world
2: just spin The Received Wisdom podcast is edited by Edward Weissanin and produced with help from the Shapira Design Lab at the University of Michigan. We would love it if you would subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platforms. You can also find all the recordings, transcripts, and links to the books, articles, and other stuff we discuss in this episode at our website, thereceivedwisdom.org. That's thereceivedwisdom, one word, dot org. Talk to you soon.